Welcome, everybody. This is Simon Russell from Behavioral Finance Australia, and today I'm joined by workplace wellbeing educator Anna Glynn. Welcome, Anna. Thanks, Simon. Hello. Nice to be here. Fantastic. Well, today we're going to be talking about trust and psychological safety. Uh, what do we mean by these terms? What does the evidence say about them? And how can we use them in the context of a workplace? Now, just by way of background, Anna and I have um, worked together some years back in the past when we both used to work at MLC. Since that time, we've both gone out and established our own practices, both around aspects of um, using psychological research to help our clients. But I suspect often in some uh, interesting, interestingly different ways, which is hopefully where we'll go with this conversation today. So I'm going to ask Anna a few questions about trust and, and uh, psychological safety. I'll also throw in a few uh, of my observations and experiences as well. Perhaps to kick us off, Anna, maybe you can give us a bit of a definition. What do we mean by trust, would you say? Trust is about having sort of a belief and a confidence in another person. So it's often seen as sort of like a one-to-one -one, um, sort of factor. It's definitely something that's built over time, so it's not something that's sort of instantaneous. Um, and it's often a reflection of, you know, doing what we say we're going to do. So it's very much a sort of um, something that can be displayed through action, not just necessarily words. Um, I think we've all probably heard people say things and do opposite things, um, and that's certainly a quick way to erode trust. Yeah, and so you mentioned there that it could be that someone says something and does something different, but then there might be a number of reasons why they might say something and do something different. Does it, does it matter what the reasons are, do you think? Uh, yeah, definitely. I think there's probably, uh, you know, the reasons why people do that. But I think, um, you know, if we talk about in a workplace context, you know, sometimes the things that we see certainly at the moment you know, probably organisations or leaders saying things like, you know, absolutely, we've got flexible workplace policies and we encourage people to work from home. But in reality, um, it's probably something that uh, makes leaders really nervous because they have a distrust in their employees to work productively when they're um, not in front of the office. Yeah, so in that case, it's interesting. I, I thought you were going to say that the the employees didn't trust the communication from their their boss, their, the, the leader in that case, but you actually turned it into, no, no, actually the boss doesn't trust the employees and maybe it was a bit sort of reciprocated um, lack of trust in that case. I think it definitely goes two ways. I think there's obviously the, uh, you know, leadership demonstrating trust in their employees and obviously employees having trust in their in their leaders as well. And I think it's, it's, it's a shared responsibility. It's something that we all need to, to try and foster. It's not just um, something that uh, one individual has to do over another. Um, you know, it's even things like, you know, sharing information um, and, and as you said, you know, making sure it's, um, you know, trusted communication that perhaps is um, happening over time and really sharing with employees, you know, what's going on with the organisation. Yeah, so I might come back to the, um, to the strategies in a second, but uh, just before we move on to the definition of psychological safety, which was the other part that we were going to um, uh, focus on today, my reflections, I guess, on some of the things you've described is that they are quite consistent with some of the things that I talk about. Um, when I'm often talking to probably to investment managers about aspects of trust, I think I'm looking at two things um, in particular. One is whether you trust a person's expertise so if the weatherman says, I shouldn't say weatherman, weather, weather person says tomorrow it's going to rain, do I trust that that person is actually going to be accurate? 
I don't think they're deliberately misleading me. I suspect they're not. They're doing their best. But do I trust them versus do I trust if a CEO says, well, actually, next year we're going to beat the revenue forecast or someone tells me the commodity prices, the price of coal will be up to 300 bucks a ton or whatever it is next those things, they might be motivated. It's less about motivation, I think, more about competence. How do you judge competence? And there's a bunch of problems with how we do judge competence. And therefore, how do you judge who you can really rely on to, with their hand and their heart, actually tell you stuff that really is going to be useful and accurate? I think mm-hmm. that's that's part for me is working out who those, those different people's judgments we can trust. And then the other part is the motivation piece, which I find quite fascinating because there's all, all this research about how you attribute meanings to people's communications and if it's ambiguous then we have an inclination to misattribute meaning to attribute negative meanings to over attribute things to people's characteristics versus their circumstances so there's all this nuance in understanding and looking through a piece of communication saying well, what does it really mean and how do I interpret it and what's going on behind the scenes that I think can sort of add to the the flavor of what you can trust for what reasons and what sort of circumstances to have that sort of rich conversation around trust but perhaps I might move on to the psychological safety piece as well which is another thing that just sort of sounds really good I mean why would you not want psychological safety psychological stuff what sounds good and safety who doesn't want safety but maybe maybe can give us a definition what what do we mean by psychological safety as well well, my, my point exactly, don't we all want this? Um, and particularly when we understand the benefits of psychological safety in the workplace, it should certainly be something that we're all trying to um, strive for. I think um, a, a good place to start is maybe by talking about what psychological safety isn't. And unfortunately for most of us, um, you know, we're accustomed to workplaces where, you know, we can't make mistakes. We can't share our opinions. We have to, you know, hold back on, on um you know, voicing our comments um, for fear or of some sort of retribution, whether that's sort of like an embarrassment or a judgment of of some um, some description. So that's often what the, or I guess, as I'm describing, perhaps some of the workplaces that many of us are accustomed to. So psychological safety is basically the opposite of that. It's where we have sort of the environment that enables all of us to share our opinions without any fear associated or any punishment um, or retribution associated with doing that. So trust and psychological safety aren't the same. Um, I almost describe trust as a component of psychological safety. Psychological safety is more about sort of the group norms. So it's more about the environment that you're creating to allow people to feel safe. Um, So when those fears are removed, when we don't feel like we're going to get in trouble from saying something or pointing out mistakes, that's when we know psychological safety is present. Yeah, it's interesting. So you could feel unsafe, I guess, if you expected some sort of punishment, as you say. But I wonder how much you could actually feel, you could feel, feel the punishment, even if it's not real, even if you just sort of sit there thinking, gosh, that was a silly thing for me to say, or this seems like a simple question where everyone else is thinking, gosh, I was thinking the same thing. It's, it's like, how do you build that? Well, maybe, maybe we'll get to the solutions in, in a second, but there's a component there that might even just be perceived. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I think it does come down to a lot of our self-limiting beliefs about, you know, and, and fears of saying the wrong thing or fear of looking silly. Um, but how many times have we all sat in that meeting room where someone finally does make that opinion? You think, oh, my gosh, it's exactly what I was thinking. You know, why didn't I speak up? 
um, I guess what they, they've observed in teams where psychological safety is high, so this is places like Google where they've done lots of these studies, is they've actually looked and observed through, um, you know, cameras what, what were teams doing and they looked at the interactions between employees and what they were noticing is that everyone had a voice at the table. Um, so they're actually seeing in meetings that there wasn't just sort of one person, you know, hogging the log. There was um, opinions being shared by the entire group. So again, that's coming back to something that you can absolutely see within the within the team. Yeah. So do you think that's an, that's an outcome of psychological safety or a driver of psychological safety? Oh, that's an interesting question. Probably a bit of both in terms of you know what comes first. I think you have to establish um, the the practices to enable that to happen. Um, but then obviously the employees have to feel that trust um, and that has to be built to, to enable that to occur as well because they're not going to share their opinions if they don't, you know, trust the other people around them as well. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there's, there's probably a bit of, it's a bit circular, isn't it? If mm. I see other people willing to put themselves out there, then maybe I feel more amenable to doing the same. But particularly if that other person is... I don't know, a senior leader, the chair or whoever it is, if that's the person who's going out there and asking the apparently silly question or mm. saying, well, actually, you know what, I've got a bit of uncertainty about this thing that we've all just agreed to, that sort of stuff, um, that, then, yeah, may, maybe that then helps me. I think as well it goes back to those questions of the how we judge expertise and, and people's motivations as well. So if, if someone asks that simple question, it's very easy for me to think, that person is a simple-minded sort of, I, I, I don't know, person with low-level expertise. They haven't thought about the complexity here. And the challenge, I think, in some of the stuff that I do with investment managers is sometimes relatively simple strategies are the most effective way to cut through complexity. Mm. And yet they look silly. And so every now and then when I give people a, a puzzle where they have to really come to a, rel a relatively simple solution because there's so much noise that if they try and do the complex thing, they're actually overthinking it. The people who are in the minority generally who come up with a simple answer actually are literally laughed at. When they say, I just go all X, all blue or whatever it was in, in terms of these sort of simple, simple um, answers, it's the mm -hmm. right answer. It's the best answer. And yet they do get laughed at. So it's yeah, being right isn't necessarily an antidote <laughs> to feeling or feeling or looking silly in front of your colleagues, unfortunately. Absolutely. Mm. So I think you've touched on this a bit already, but maybe I'll just see if there's anything else to add to it now about well, what do these things look like? What does trust look like and psychological safety look like in an organisation versus what does it not look like? Yeah, great question, Simon. Um, I think you can really gauge sort of the, the feel and the energy within a team when you're present with them. And certainly it's something that I can observe even via Zoom or, or other virtual platforms. Um, but that aside, I think what we can see within, you know, highly trusting and psychological safe environments is, you know, certainly at the individual level, we're seeing you know, high quality relationships is the term um, used by Jane Dutton, who's a leader in this space, um, to define those relationships. So they're relationships where, you know, people respect one another. Um, you know, when they're conversing one-on-one, -on -one, they're showing the other person that they exist. So there's no, you know, phones, checking emails when you're having a conversation with someone. Really simple stuff, but often gets neglected. Um, 
you know, being present, listening to them, um, communicating well, you know, giving people what they need in that moment as opposed to giving them what we think they need, which is often um, a big failure of ours. Um, you know, from a sort of team dynamic, we're going to see teams that have got uh, really high collaboration with one another. And that's actually something that fuels a lot of creativity and innovation, which can be what gives, a, um, you know, gives organisations their competitive edge above anything else. Um, you know, we're also seeing at the organisational level, again, sort of the routines and practices that create these environments that foster things like learning. So learning from mistakes um, or learning from opportunities you know, how do we actually create the norms around how we're going to communicate with one another, particularly in, you know, this hybrid environment that many of us are finding ourselves in? Because it's not just business as usual. It absolutely requires different practices to, to foster those relationships. Yeah, so, so you've, you've, there's, there's a heat there you've just uh, <laughs> you've just unloaded on our audience. So maybe if I, if I might go back. So if, if I got you right, there was sort of individual team-based and then organisation-level things. So if I go back to the individual ones for a second, so one of the things that occurred to me listening to you mention that um, sort of one-on-one -on -one type interactions, the, the sort of interpersonal, is this uh, judge-advisor systems research, which you may have come across, where they put people in sort of decision-making environments where one person has to make a choice and the other person has to give them some input that might help them make that choice. And there's a whole range of different scenarios where maybe both of them have got equal amount of expertise or, and information. Sometimes one of them's an expert, one of them is not an expert. Anyway, a range of different situations. But if you put people on an equal footing and say, right, the two of you, well, sorry, person A has to make a choice, person B is going to give you some input. Person, so say it's like one of the examples is, um, judging the weight of a person and you only get to look at their picture, mm -hmm. right? Both of us get to look at the picture. Person A says, you think, I think that person weighs 70 kilos. I have to make the judgment, by the way. I say, I say 70 kilos. You look at that person and go, oh, no, I think more like 80. All right, now, okay, fine. I've got my input, which was 70. I've got yours, which was, says 80. What should I do? Now, should I trust your judgment or should I trust my judgment? How should I weigh the two, these two sort of levels? And in this case, well, assuming that you and I have got equal expertise, really what I should do is I should just take the middle ground and say, actually, our best estimate, take out some of the noise. We probably both made an error. I'm probably too low. You're probably too high. 75 is our best guess. That's probably where we should go. But if you look at that research, that's not how typically people tend to, um, uh, to combine their judgments together. What I'll do is if I said 70 and you said 80, maybe I might move a little bit and I'll say, well, 72. Oh, maybe I'm a little bit too low, but clearly you're miles off the mark. That, that's, what I, that's what I might think. So have you got any thoughts about that sort of, how do I weigh my judgment versus this other person's? How much trust should I have in that other person's judgment? It's a really interesting question and scenario, which obviously plays out a lot in the workplace. And I think, you know, it sort of comes back to your earlier comment about the weather and who, who do you trust? I think it comes back to probably in that scenario, you know, who's maybe got the experience in that, um, you know, to give the credibility around, you know, which opinion should you trust more in that, in that particular scenario? Um, if all parts being equal, I'm probably going down your, your first solution, which is to, you know, go straight down, down the middle. Yeah, I mean, and that's not what people do. That That is the, in that case, if we both have the same expertise, yeah, that, that's what people should do. I mean, part of, I think, what's going on there, it's, it's not me, I guess, as researchers would say, is that I have my own internal dialogue. I can hear myself going, you know what, that person looks a bit bigger than me and I weigh 
whatever I do. And that person, that, that I can hear all that dialogue going in, in, on in my head. I can't hear what's going on in your head where you're making some, some sort of similar judgments. And so I discount down what you say, but because I, gosh, yours doesn't seem to be based on anything at all, whereas mine is clearly thought through and therefore I weigh mine a bit, bit more heavily. Um, and if you take those sort of concepts at a team level, and you've got a whole bunch of people now with different perspectives around a boardroom table, for example, or, or whatever it is in a team, sort of team meeting or offsite, then how do you judge the expertise of the people and how much do I trust the people around the room and the co collective group decision compared with my judgment, particularly if I'm the, the team leader or the most senior person, should I trust my own judgment or the people around the table? Another great question. And I, I think that's where, um, you know, it's so important to get those different views. So, um, you know, the the approach is more about, you know, not just going with your own judgment, but at least understanding what the other views might be, because quite often we have such a narrow focus and that might be because of, you know, our previous experience of what we think will work best in that scenario. Um, but we might be missing things. We might have the blinkers on, which is so often the case. Um, so that's where it's just about actually gathering the, the opinions of the others to see what they are, because there could be a better response out there than your own or your or a better solution, perhaps. Yeah. I think there's a bit of reluctance in which maybe you've come across as well. I did a session and I, I remember asking people what they thought the, the optimal team size was. How many people think 10 or seven or three or five or whatever it is? Anyway, a lot of people said one. If I could just make decisions by myself and get rid of all these other people, it would be a lot more, it would be a lot more efficient. So there seems to be some pretty substantial barriers to actually having that sort of collaborative, trusted sort of um, decision-making or group dynamics that allow for those diverse perspectives to be aired and then combined in a sort of collaborative way. Well, that's that's exactly this point of psychological safety. And that's where, you know, often it starts with um, you know, the leaders because. Uh, they need to role model the behaviours that we wish to see in our employees, but often they're the ones that might have to um, actually put themselves outside the comfort zone by actually exposing some of their vulnerabilities or their shortcomings. And that's where it's often, you know, it's the hardest step for them to take is, uh, you know, is doing that, is saying, I don't have all the answers, um, but, you know, it's so much better in the long run by admitting that and then obviously having the team around you um, to provide you with, with those responses. It's actually a much smarter leadership strategy, you know, to be playing to your own strengths rather than being trying to be so many different things or trying to be great at so many different areas. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, that's that first step. Yeah, it's interesting. And that's exactly one of the things that I say as well, which is, hey, if you're the leader, you've got to be the one who's going to take the step to, to show your vulnerability. But how many people I say that to actually go after that and do it? I'm not there to see in many cases, but it's not an easy thing to do, even for the leader, probably less so for, for the other people, particularly more junior people in the team. So have you had success, do you think, in encouraging people to do that? Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily, you know, me driving success, but I think what certainly has been one of the silver linings of the last 18 months has been, us, uh, you know, being zoomed in to our leaders' uh, personal lives. So all of a sudden that sort of vulnerability or exposure, um, you know, to kind of what goes on behind the scenes of that leader's life has suddenly come, you know, literally into our own living rooms. So I say that in terms of being a silver lining is that we've actually seen leaders, 
you know, showing um, that other side. They've got their children at home or their partner at home or their dog barking in the background or whatever it is. They've actually now been more open to sharing some of the struggles of trying to balance, you know, working from home with all those, um, you know, other distractions. And so I think slowly what we've certainly seen is now leaders opening up more about those struggles, which has, um, you know, created a whole lot um, or much richer and deeper conversations across the team. So that's certainly something that I've seen. Just by way of full disclosure, as we've been having this conversation, my dog walked around the room and drank some of my water and walked out again. <laughs> just, just to put that on the table. <laughs> anyway, moving, moving right along. So you, you've mentioned, uh, I guess, a couple of things you've done in the conversations you've been having with teams. Maybe we can spend a little bit more time um, going through some of the strategies that you've employed, some of the experiences you've had with teams, some of the ex- success stories that you've um, you can share what sort of um, examples do you think uh, would be good to bring out some of these concepts around trust and psychological safety? Mm. Yeah, so I guess the work that I've been doing with businesses, you know, firstly is just about talking about the importance of relationships, particularly at work. And I guess, again, that's been such an important topic over the last 18 months where all of a sudden we're finding ourselves physically apart from our colleagues um, or certainly the majority of us have. So, how do we establish those good relationships when perhaps we are in these hybrid environments? So, um, yeah, first step is talking about, you know, why relationships are important to us um, and also why they're really good for business. So we see some, you know, great outcomes in terms of better employee engagement, performance, productivity, motivation. um, Plus, people are less likely to leave their organisation when they've got good friends at work. So very good for us and very good for our companies too. So it makes sense that our organisations should be trying to invest in all of us having really good quality relationships at work. Um, To go sort of into the detail, I guess a lot of what I've been teaching, um, you know, from leaders is, or to leaders is certainly around what their employees are asking for. So, you uh, you know, things around how to be or how to drive empathy, how to be more inclusive, how to best communicate and interact with others. Um, you know, typically these were seen as the, the soft skills, but these are actually the hard skills because they're the ones that the leaders are, are lacking at the moment. Um, these are the things that their teams are asking for from them. And these are also the skills that leaders are saying um, that they don't have. So absolutely, um, there's been a lot of focus in that space. Yeah, that's... That, that, um as you say, soft skills, that sometimes bugs me, I must admit, um, things that are called soft, because I think often what people mean by soft is unmeasurable, sort of intangible type of stuff. And fair enough, if there are things like that, it's different from, say, a hard science. It's not, it's not particle physics, or even then you can't, it's hard to measure stuff. It's not, I don't know, whatever, whatever the example, it's not science in the sense that it's a measurable, sort of always correct in every circumstance. There's going to be stuff that you can measure but it's, there's ranges of uncertainties, there's complexities in different environments. And it's, so it's, I don't like the sort of binary nature of there's hard science and then there's fluff. There's, mm-hmm. there's stuff that's measurable, that's actionable. There's the sort of stuff that sits in between. And some of, the, some of these sort of concepts that uh, have been measured in team decision-making environments where you can actually measure accuracy, they measure the accuracy of decisions. And you can put people in situations where some people have got information and other people in, the, in that group don't have information and you can see how well they go. And if they don't actually share the information, if people withhold it, 
for one reason or another. Maybe they don't think it's relevant. Maybe they don't feel psychologically safe to, to contribute it because it's different from what everybody else considers as appropriate. Maybe they're not very good at speaking. Whatever the reason is, actually, you can measure that these people, these teams come up with worse outcomes. They're less accurate. They're less creative. They're more, more error prone. All those sorts of things are actually measurable mm. and make a big difference to investment decision making, corporate decision making. It's not just I feel nice about the fact that people are listening to me. Actually, <laughs> listening to you makes a difference if you've got something important to say and you bring a sort of relevant perspective to the table. Hmm. Yeah, oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I use the term human skills. I think that's what they're called. Um, but I know that, you know, traditionally that was the term. We won't use the S word again, but that was the term that was, you know, associated with that skill set. But now we know they're, they're the skills that we need to build um, that so many people are lacking. Yeah. Hmm. I, I must admit one of the things that I've, one of my reflections is how difficult this sort of stuff often is mm. uh, and therefore how much support people need for it. So what I mean by that, I guess, is we can say till we're blue in the face, we need to make it psychologically safe for everybody to speak up. So the, the challenge is that some people will do the stuff that we've talked about. Some leaders will create the psychological safety that, that will allow their teams to then say the things that they might feel uncomfortable about, say the things that their team might disagree with, say the things that maybe they might be wrong about, that they might feel foolish about, that might look simple. Some people might do that, but some people might still not do that. Mm. So if I'm still, if I'm junior, if I'm an introvert, if I'm a new employee, I don't know, there's still going to be a range of things where I'm still uncertain, despite the best efforts of the team and the leaders, that sort of stuff. So one of the things, I'd be interested in your view on this, but one of the things that I tend to suggest to people is to embed the process into a team meeting to mm -hmm. say, actually, what we're going to do is, for example, we're going to have everybody's having a chance to speak once before anyone speaks a second time. I'm not necessarily advocating that. That's an example. Or you can look at the sort of reverse hierarchical approach where you just say, all right, we're going to go in. Most junior person first is going to speak first followed by second most junior person all the way through to most senior person so that the first person to speak who's the most junior person doesn't have to worry about contradicting the senior leader because, well, well sorry, they might still worry, but they don't know what, they wouldn't know what to say in that way. They can't bite their tongue because they don't really know what, what that person's going to say. That sort of stuff to mm -hmm. sort of embed in the process. So this is just the standard way we do it. And, and it's, I guess it's somewhat, it's somewhat forcing you to contribute if, everyone has to take a turn so there's a, maybe a little bit of discomfort around that but hopefully mm. that's the benefit is it's actually allow, then allowing you to air your perspective air that information air the stuff that maybe you still might not feel comfortable to contribute to that meeting do you, do you use that sort of strategy as well definitely so i always look at uh you know the individual which we kind of spoken about i spoke about earlier with what we do with the leaders um, you've sort of spoken then about the us which is the collective the organizational level which is what are the routines and practices we need in place that enables trust and psychological safety to be evident so absolutely those two the third is the middle which is kind of the we level which is the team so what are we doing as a team to also foster trust and psychological safety some of these things um, that I talk about here are knowing one another's strengths. So very good self-awareness exercise is knowing your own strengths, but it's a really great um, trust-building exercise is actually knowing the strengths of other people. Um, and so understanding, you know, the, them at their best. 
that's obviously great information for a leader to have because they can actually start to uh, delegate and align roles and responsibilities according to people's strengths. And again, that builds a lot of trust. Things also um, like boosting positive emotion. So might seem, um, you know, a bit left field to discuss this when we're talking about trust and psychological safety, but, um, you know, sharing positivity or a positive environment with teams is actually a great way to, to boost a lot of trust as well. So, you know, things like um, how we're going to practice gratitude, how we're also going to celebrate our successes. Um, you know, so often we, we forget to actually, uh, you know, take notice of all the things that we have achieved. Also just, you know, how we're going to play together. Um, so, you know, again, you know, things like social catch-ups are really important for us to, to bond with our team members and they're a really great way for us to get to, to know one another better in perhaps what's a bit more of a casual environment as well. Yes, and let's, let's hope we can get back to those casual environments for social bonding sometime soon. Definitely and, can uh, be done in a virtual environment, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> very, very true, very true. Okay, fantastic. Well, I try and keep these things relatively short, so I'm sure there's plenty more that you could contribute here, Anna, but um, I think we might try and wind up there. Um, if people are interested in hearing more about um, what you offer in this space, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Oh, sure, that would be great. So people can contact me directly uh, via my website, which is anaglynn.com.au. You can reach out on LinkedIn or I'm also on uh, Facebook as well. Fantastic. Facebook as well. Gosh, that's for the younger generation, is it? Uh, definitely oh. not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, older generation. Sorry, I got that wrong. <laughs> well, I don't have a Facebook. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, probably my website, behavioralfinanceaustralia.com.au or LinkedIn are the best options for me. And on that note, thank you very much, Anna. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Simon.